Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the acclaimed movie, All of Us Strangers, starring Paul Mescal and Andrew Scott. Stream the new Hulu original limited series, We Were the Lucky Ones, with Joey King and Logan Lerman. And don't forget about Grey's Anatomy. Every Grey's episode ever is now streaming on Hulu. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to Bad Dad, Raw Dad, where we look for better dads one movie at a time. I'm Kylie. I'm Elliot. And we're going to talk about the movies we watched this week before crowning the baddest dad and raddest dad of them all. And as always, dad is an energy, not a gender. Welcome back. Or if this is your first time here, welcome. We're going to be talking about four smackaroonies this week, all of which are pretty great. Let's get into it. First movie is we went out to Metro Cinema because they were showing the 2013 drama romance sci-fi film, Her. It was written and directed by Spike Jones, and it stars Joaquin Phoenix as Theodore, Amy Adams as Amy, Scarlett Johansson as the voice of Samantha, Rooney Mara as Catherine, and Chris Pratt as Paul. Also, one of my favorite castings is Kristen Wiig as Sexy Kitten. <laughs> Synopsis. In a near future... A lonely writer develops an unlikely relationship with an operating system designed to meet his every need. What do you think of her? We've seen her a couple times, few times. Yes. Um, our bookending of films this week is really interesting because they're films that I think we've had changing feelings about. They're also movies for me that fall under the category of white boy TM a little bit. Yeah, and so this is one, and I think it's I think it's good to examine the films that are like pushed up as the best films even before you see them, mm. which tend to be films made in about white men. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the first time we saw this, I think we liked it quite a lot. Yeah. We saw it in the theater together. And then I kind of went through a changing period of time where I was like, I just don't like it on principle. And I'm kind of moving out of that space of like not liking something on principle and thinking about like, what does this film mean to me personally? While I can also perhaps have some reflections and sometimes criticisms of it within the landscape of film and when within the landscape of the time it was made and now. Mm-hmm. And this is one that seeing it again now, we actually had watched it fairly recently, like a couple of years ago. And I was like, no, I still like it. But something about seeing it in the theater, it had a very emotional experience with it. Yeah, I, I'm i 100% with you on all of that. 
yeah, my feelings about this movie kind of continued to evolve over time. I kind of went from seeing it for the first time and unabashedly loving it and then undeniably feeling complicated about it. And then to today in which I can acknowledge all of those past feelings that I have and then seeing it in the theater, like you said, I think that I have a newfound love and appreciation for it that is that has moved seen in the theater like moved me in a new way that it hadn't before I mean I think there's something about this movie that it was made in 2013 when iPhones were pretty new we're still pretty jacked in to to think back to Johnny Mnemonic who thought we'd be jacked in forever and we were you and I were new adults as well yeah we were young Um, but watching this now and seeing how much of the future world created in her actually really feels like our world now, Yeah, you know, down to the way that their little devices they have in their ears look very similar to AirPods, which Mm -hmm. walk down a hallway in my school, sit in a classroom in my school and 50% plus of students have at least one AirPod in their ear and are trying to hide it, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. And we talk to our phones now. They can't talk back to us the way that the AI in this can, but we're at the precipice of being really, depending on who you are, what field you work in, your ethical thoughts about it, we're on the precipice of being very excited and very scared about the potentials of AI. Mm -hmm. And so there is something about this film, looking at it in 2023, that's very different than seeing it in 2013. Yeah, uh, 100% agree. I want to dig into that a little bit specifically about AI because I like you described have a complicated relationship with it where it both excites me and it and it scares me and I feel like my outlook on this kind of world that's in in the in the film her and the AI that exists in our world my outlook on it has changed to be more understanding of how big of a role and how important a part of a person's life it can be so i want to share like a quick thing i ever talked to you about this it's just like i i watch smosh this series on smosh where they read where they read reddit stories uh from people and it's typically has to do with relationships or things that aren't great but i found this kind of sad but it also really opened my eyes a little bit and especially when watching this film the time the timing of the two was really interesting in that there was this uh, there was there's this woman she was married to a man and there was this AI program where you can put in a character from anything and you can have conversations with them uh, via text input and she wanted to talk with one of her favorite video game characters so she gave it that persona so she's talking with it and it's just all kind of fun but then it started turning into becoming an outlet for her to have conversations that she felt she couldn't have with her husband which on one hand there's there's clearly something in the relationship with her husband that needs to be looked into and discussed but the fact that she felt comfortable turning to AI and AI was giving her responses that made her feel comforted and made her feel seen and heard while there, there's complication wrapped up in that I find that really beautiful that there are tools that are able to do that for people because because it's it's kind of like a diary but the diary is able to talk back to you 
And for me, it's not just about AI. There's something about this film that taps into like the intimacy that can be created through some layer of distance or some layer of yeah. um, remove in, in some way. So in the case of Samantha and Theodore, they, they can't physically be with each other and Samantha doesn't have any visual appearance of any kind. Mm -hmm. But I think about myself as a, a teenager, how so many of my friendships with people I knew in real life really like, became their most intimate and their most connected, like late night chatting on MSN. Yes, 100%. Or I think about, you know, people throughout the years, but I'm even thinking right now who I've connected with, say through Letterboxd, where we, we've we never met, but we know things about each other's lives and offer condolences and, and get excited for each other. And, and some of that has turned into like adding each other on Instagram and mm. getting to to visually see each other, but there's some folks I interact with very frequently on Letterboxd who I like, I'd be really sad if all of a sudden they just disappeared and I had no way to know what happened. Mm -hmm. Who I don't even know what they look like. In fact, there's people in Edmonton who like, we frequently comment and like each other's reviews and because their icon on Letterboxd is not their face, I don't know who they are. Mm -hmm. And we're probably in the theater with them often. Yeah. Um, so I don't think it's just about AI. It's about what... This film seems to say to me, connecting is hard. Yeah. Relationships are hard. And there are different ways to connect with people. And, and I think the important thing is to try and bring what you can get out of one relationship that's healthy and helpful and beautiful and try and reflect on that and bring those capabilities into other relationships, right? Because I think this film explores... That the relationship with Samantha is really beautiful, but it's most beautiful when it's not isolating anymore. Mm -hmm. Like it's most beautiful when he brings Samantha in with Paul and in with Amy and mm -hmm. and they can share in that together. Um, yeah, I just just to button my thought on AI, I, I, I really felt my the shift that happened in my head and how I feel about it, watching it in the theater and listening to the the laughs and the audience response that was laughter to certain moments because of how Theodore and was using AI or how people were interacting with their AI. Like it felt like very like that's silly or, or I'm uncomfortable. Yeah. Um, but, and I think that we'll all kind of get there eventually. Like the world, this is a, this is a future that's really not that far away at this point. But yeah, I just, I think that there is beauty in having that sort of connection and I, I love what you're talking about, too, like that I can totally relate to just seeking connection with people. It, it's it's faceless, but it's not heartless. And sometimes it's actually the most meaningful. Like, you know, mm -hmm. I I think about someone like my my mom, I think, would struggle to understand, like you have friends you met through an app who you don't actually know <laughs> who you care about. Yeah. But, you know, I, I I've had people, you know, throughout like I had friends on Nexopia, I had yeah. friends on Johnny Depp dash zone.com, you know, <laughs> yeah. like met my former best friend through there and we lit you and me lived with her for a very, for like a year. Uh, not that's a very long of, time. That's kind of nuts to think about it that way though. Like that you met this person through Johnny Depp.net zone.net and then we lived with that person. Yeah. And it was this gradual, like we started chatting through like the DM function on, it was a forum. Like this is like, early 2000s and then 
added each other on MSN and, and just typed and then eventually used microphones on MSN. And then because I'm super cautious, I had a friend who went to the same school as her and was like, can you check that this person is real? <laughs> and then like met at West Ed and I brought some friends with me just in case, <laughs> mm-hmm. you know, like it's these things are these types of relationships, these types of connections. We can have connections with people in person that are different or deepened or added to when we have these like levels of remove, we can have relationships that start there and, and become something that we can seek out in, in real life. I think AI is like a legit thing. You know, I just think what I liked about this movie now, even though it is a white boy TM movie is that the film is ultimately about like how the people we connect with shape who we are mm-hmm. no matter how our connections with them change and or grow yeah and that they are a part of the accumulation of who we are today and that being open to having grace and love for those relationships you once had even if they're gone is actually a really important part of growing and moving forward as a person and that you can feel sad about the loss of a relationship, no matter what kind of loss, whether it's through a death, a breakup, a moving away, mm-hmm. like whatever it is. But it can also be beautiful, like that acknowledgement of the importance that this person played in your life. Yeah. Right? Like I think in the pantheon of white boy TM movies, you think about 500 Days of Summer, which I actually find to be like really cutting of and dismissive of past relationships. And you mm-hmm. get that from the first two seconds of the movie. And then this, where it does explore the beauty and the complexity and the importance of previous relationships and current relationships on shaping who you are. Where Theodore and Amy both get with their respective breakups, Mm -hmm. I think actually says so much about that and that Theodore's relationship with Samantha is equally important as his relationship to Catherine and, and shaping who he is, even though they were different relationships. And I think... For the first time, I really thought about that beautiful handwritten letters and how that's like a different kind of AI or a different kind of distance, right? I want to show this person that I love them, but I don't feel like I have the capacity to write a beautiful letter. So I'm going to do that through another person. And yet it is my love, right? And if we think that is beautiful, then, or if we don't think that's silly, although some people probably do, it's not that different from Samantha. Yeah, I... I'm I'm glad you brought that up because that was a moment in the movie that shifted for me. Like I think that I used to be more judgmental of it unfairly and now I'm just like it's the same as somebody that writes something then puts it into ChatGPT to help craft it or make it better or something like that. You know, like Which just, is okay if they're not doing it for a mark in English class where they're being graded on <laughs> Yeah, or how like, it sounds. Or using Grammarly to help like spruce up the language that you're using because you want to express yourself in the best way to people that you love. Like having a a job or people that you send this information to that then help you craft that. Like I actually found the service to be really Well, yeah, beautiful. I think about how like what, it, or this happens quite often. Like I'm like, let's make a Chris, Christmas. Let's make a birthday card mm-hmm. for a niece. Mm-hmm. I have an idea, but I'm not a good artist. Can you make this Elliot? Mm-hmm. You know, where I think about like like things that we've done together where some of the visual components were my idea, but you executed them. And that doesn't mean it's I didn't play a part in it and mm-hmm. vice versa. There's things that are like written word wise, your idea, but then I've put them into the words. 
Yeah. And I also think that that's just a beautiful part of creativity in general. I like that an idea can come from one person, but multiple people can help execute it and and I think that's amazing. That's what this film is ultimately about is like creativity, intimacy, connection, and how that can exist in so many different ways. And we should be open to that and open to acknowledging when it's ending and feel the emotions we feel about that, but also feel grateful that the relationship existed and carry it with us as we move forward. And I thought that was just so beautiful this time. It's the definition of sorrowful hope that we've stolen from Charles Melton. Mm-hmm. Um, and it hit me so hard this time. Yeah, I really, I really so liked emotional. it. I, I think I was in like kind of a weird space just personally that day. So I didn't cry, but I was like, oh man, if I saw this in the theater on a different day, I think I would cry. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, I, I yeah, I, I've, the dial has shifted on this and I, I really like it. I think it's really beautiful and I think it has a lot to say about relationships that are. And connection. And, and connection and, and loss. And, and loneliness um, and, and perceived loneliness and it has all this jeff mcfetridge art and design in it if you haven't which we know about now (laughs) yeah if you haven't listened to our episode our if episode this year about the jeff mcfetridge documentary go take a listen to it we'll we'll link to it in the show notes and we talked with the director of that documentary it was it was lovely just some off the hip things i wanted to quickly mention was just i think everybody is pitch perfect in this movie i think that the acting is incredible uh, the relationship between Theodore and Amy stuck with me particularly uh, on this viewing, and I, I, I've been carrying it with me. And this is both one of my favorite films aesthetically. Like, I think that this is just a visual treat. Like, everything from the clothing to the color palettes to the design of the sets and and the AI and everything. I think it's so aesthetically pleasing. And just a quick thing is this is also one of my favorite film scores of all time despite my complicated feelings about arcade fire i think that them and owen palette did an amazing job with this movie and i loved it so much that they didn't release it until 2021 proper but i sleuthed it from the internet back in 2013 um as it didn't get a proper release so i have like the her score like one hour long thing that I would scrub through and <laughs> we find do have it on bits. vinyl now. But. We did support the artist eventually, <laughs> but uh, yeah, um, this, uh, this was a treat to see in the theater and uh, I'm, I'm grateful we got to see it and have this conversation about it. How did it make you feel? It made me feel an achy appreciation for this exploration of the importance of all connections, even those we've lost or will lose. Oh, beautiful. I am the words. <laughs> you are truly. How did it make you feel? In love with this film and the ever ever changing way it makes me feel. My favorite thing about art is that it changes with us. Yeah. It changes with the times. Won't be the last time we mentioned that this week. Okay, we got out to see a movie um, that we've been wanting to see for a while. It's a 2023 drama history romance, which wouldn't sound like it's my cup of tea, <laughs> but it is. Uh, it's The Taste of Things. It was directed by Tran An Hung and written by him and Marcel Ruff. It stars Juliette Binoche as Eugenie, Benoit Maginel as Dodin Buffon, Galate Bulgi as Violette, and Bonnie Chongyo Revoir as Pauline. Synopsis The story of Eugenie, an esteemed cook, and Dodin, the fine gourmet who she has been working for over the last 20 years. Weird synopsis. Um, what did you think of the taste of things? 
I was quite excited for this because we were originally planning on seeing this at IFE last year, Edmonton International Film Festival, but just timing didn't line up and we didn't we didn't get the opportunity to. I was a little disappointed, but Metro Cinema, of course, came up clutch and they brought it to the to the theater. And I love this. And I think what I've dialed it down to is that tonally, it's the sweet spot of everything I love in movies. <laughs> yeah. Tell me a little. I agree with you, but I want to hear why. I It combines uh, so many of the, the things that I love. I think that visually it's, pardon the pun, a feast. I love that there's a, the tons of wonners throughout the whole thing. Beautiful one shots. And there's sweetness that exists between our characters and love and appreciation and respect, not without its complications and complexities and nuances, which I love that it's it's a romance that isn't just, I love you unconditionally. <laughs> yeah, I have to say, I'm curious if you'll agree with me on this. You and me are not Dodin and Eugenie. Like, we are not. Mm-hmm. Their personalities are not ours. And yet I found their connection and their relationship the most relatable to how I see our relationship mm. of any on-screen relationship I've seen in a long time. Like, we are not yeah. them. Their dynamic is not ours. But something about the, like, mutual respect for each other, the... And, I mean, part of it is this, like, we're older and we're not having kids and, mm-hmm. and like, we just enjoy the things we enjoy together. But there was something just so fundamentally beautiful about a depiction of a relationship that's not about kids and not about Mm. that life it's about working together with the things that you love and having such a deep respect for each other's craft thought heart yeah that's really well put because yeah i i agree like i think that there are things that i equated to us and I, i another aspect to add to everything you said is i i don't think I think that you and I are attracted to each other and each other's personalities as they are. And we don't want to make the other person compromise on that because that's what yeah, we. Yeah, there's no desire to change the other person just to <clears throat> support the other person in how they change. Yeah, 100%. Um, and then the last thing that worked for me is that the cooking scenes are mesmerizing. So it's so funny to <laughs> me because you essentially don't cook. You make breakfasts and lunches, which is not cooking yep it's and you can make a good sandwich but you you can do things that don't involve heat unless it's a microwave or a preset oven i'm not blaming my adhd but it's <laughs> it has helped me understand that time management is very difficult when you're trying to manage multiple pots of things that are cooking. so but this is the funny thing to me is both you and me have always really liked watching cooking shows like we yeah. used to watch um, MasterChef. I used to be really into Chopped. You, yeah, you did have a Chopped face. <laughs> I, I did. And I liked um, Take Home Chef. <laughs> I don't even know what the fuck that is. Yes, you do. It's that guy who like shows up, Australian guy, oh, and he shows up in the right. market and he takes the woman home and helps her cook something for her husband. Right. You're going shopping? Or no. <laughs> <laughs> but we both really like cooking shows. And you especially, like, my understanding is you sometimes just watch cooking stuff on YouTube. I love it. So you really like watching it and yet you don't cook. And I do, but I don't particularly enjoy it. Like Mm -hmm. it's a chore for me. 
I really wish it wasn't. I really wish I savored it and I enjoyed it, but I don't. Um, for me, it's more of a means to an end than it is. I love eating food. Don't you get me wrong. So in watching this, I'm like, why are you not a gourmet chef? I want someone to cook for me the way in that one scene Dodin cooks for you, Janine. Like, I, I say often because I'm the one who cooks dinner in our house. That anytime I get to eat a home cooked meal that was and not this potluck pot, potluck bullshit my family does, but like somebody made a full meal for me to sit and eat that I didn't pay for or help make is so rare to me because I'm the one who cooks in our house that it is like one of the best experiences ever. I know just to my core that it would make you undeniably happy if I cooked for you and I made these not beautiful all meals. the time, but every once in a while. And I I know this, and it it's kind of to 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 kind of equate it a little bit. It's kind of like people that have like no musical ear can't can't play music, can't do anything in that regard, but they love going to concerts and watching professional musicians perform. I think you could cook though, probably. But then I'd also have to clean up, and that's a lot. Get like once a month. <laughs> Anyway, we don't need to get into that. But it, it, it made me laugh because also because it was like very um, meat and seafood heavy. And like we are long term staunch vegetarians, occasional vegans. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Ethically, we feel like we should be vegans, but we don't have much willpower. Um, still loved watching it. And I loved watching Juliette Binoche. She is so beautiful and I genuinely think she might be one of the best actors of all time and that she's made. There are many movies that she's been in that are really highly regarded that I haven't yet seen. Well, so I'm like, maybe I work on her being my most watched actor. Yeah, you said that. And I, I really like that you said that because I'm, I'm all here for it. There's also a found family aspect to this movie, which is another piece of the puzzle. I'm going to call it created family. That's nice. I think that's a little different than found family. Like, they're intentionally creating family and bringing people in mm-hmm. and welcoming them in. And, and I really loved that. Like this film is very non-traditional in the bonds that you see, but they're, they all seem very healthy and beautiful and yeah. communicative. Like even with um, Violette, who's she, she genuinely is hired help. Um, I, you haven't feel that with like Dodin's posse of food bros. Yeah. Like they're all cute together. So yeah. Someone <laughs> on, I can't remember who, someone I follow on Letterboxd was like, what a beautiful depiction of male friendship. Yeah. Like what a healthy, wonderful, and like old, this is old. <laughs> the gardens were beautiful. I also wish I gardened and I don't. There's one thing I really want to talk about though that came up for me during the movie, which is this is a film about savoring and about mm. patience, right? It's about the appreciation for something that you allow to slowly wash over you. And I, I came away from this being like, I think that all humans need to have something that they savor, but we savor different things. You and I are not food savers. We eat fast. When we go to restaurants, servers are like, they come back for like the check-in. How are things going? And we've eaten it all. And we're like, you can take this plate. Thank you. Yeah, we ate, Especially <laughs> if it's dessert or pizza, um, it happens very fast. But I think we're both art savers and especially mm. film savers. Like we, we like to get to the theater a little bit earlier. If we're at home, we like to really settle in, make sure the ambiance is right. 
make sure we both feel ready to watch. We like to kind of experience it quietly and on our own. We love a slow cinema, which I, th- I think maybe this is in that realm or playing in that realm a little bit. We like to sit through the credits, both at home and at the theater. And then we like to talk about it and continue to talk about it. And I feel like I'm like that with books. I feel like you're like that with music. Mm-hmm. And that's not to say that sometimes we don't like our fast food movies or our fast food music. Mm-hmm. But I think that that's where you and I savor. I think we savor people and I think we savor art. So maybe we don't savor food, but I think everybody would do well to have something in their life that they engage with in a way that is patient and savors it. I love that so much. I think that's beautiful. And you hit the nail on the head. Absolutely. That's what we're doing. Wow. Yeah. That, that's, I, I don't have any words for that. I just, I, I absolutely love that. When it comes to food, I think I'm kind of stealing from Rhett, from Rhett and Link, that because people are like, I've gotten comments of why do you eat so fast? And it's like, it feels so good <laughs> to put a bunch of delicious food into my mouth and get it into my body and not just hold it in my mouth or eat it slowly. Like It feels so good. I know it's like not good for me <laughs> to do that, but oh man, if, just the the dopamine rush of getting good food into me. I think me. it's totally cool and okay to have different things that you experience in different ways. But I think that seeing this movie made me think about how all, all of us, I think, need at least one area of our life that we approach in the way this film approaches food. And this film approaches film. Yeah. And maybe for you that's going for a walk or maybe it's like the way you have your coffee in the morning or maybe it's exercise, like a particular kind of exercise, but you really savor that exercise. But I think it's such an important thing. And for a moment in the film, I was like, I'm sad that I don't have that with food. And then I was like, but I have it with other things. And there's folks we know who don't savor movies and that's okay. But I'm sure that there's something else that they savor and I, I, it just made me think of that. Yeah, no, that's beautiful. I even think of like our buddy Ashley. Like, I think she savors art. Like, I think she savors creating of any kind. Yeah, that that that's even more true. <laughs> yeah. As David Lynch says, says, if you are a creator, you are a friend of mine. <laughs> so, ipso facto. <laughs> we are friends of his. Anyway, I think this is a really beautiful film. It is slow and it's... It's not super plot based, but that is the type of film we love. And I said to you, like, this is perfect, like a phantom thread for like a Sunday matinee afternoon. You don't have anything going on the next day or in the evening. Yeah. Final shot, final scene is one of my favorite I've ever seen. It's so beautiful. And um, the lines between the two of these, like between Eugenie and Doden, all timers. It's one that I, I, I really recommend and I'm, I'm very glad that we got to see in the theater. 100%. Me too. How did Taste of Things make you feel? Wrapped up in a warm emotional blanket of beauty and hunger. How did it make you feel? It made me feel transfixed by the beauty of the cinematography and the depiction of love in its many forms. Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the acclaimed movie, All of Us Strangers, starring Paul Mescal and Andrew Scott. Stream the new Hulu original limited series, We Were the Lucky Ones, with Joey King and Logan Lerman. And don't forget about Grey's Anatomy. Every Grey's episode ever 
is now streaming on Hulu. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Okay, next film, back at Metro Cinema, and we saw the 2023 drama, How to Have Sex. It was written and directed by Molly Manning Walker, and it stars Mia McKenna-Bruce as Tara, Laura Peake as Skye, Enva Lewis as M, Samuel Bottomley as Patty, and Sean Thomas as Badger. Synopsis, three British teenage girls go on a rites of passage holiday, drinking, clubbing, and hooking up, in what should be the best summer of their lives. What do you think of How to Have Sex? This was an important and a difficult movie. Yes. And I had heard about it, but didn't know much about it. Just knew that it was getting good. Yeah, good, good buzz. And then, so we kind of had it on our radar. And then when we saw the trailer a couple times at Metro, I was like, oh, this is a movie about sexual consent and sexual assault. You can tell it from the trailer. And so... Knowing that going in, I think, is really important. Um, Metro actually had a, a person who works for, like, a consent education group tabling, even though I don't think they were presenting the film. I think Metro mm-hmm. just brought them in. They were tabling in the lobby before the film, and then they came and spoke right before the film started and reminded people that, like, if you haven't, if you don't know of the trigger warnings in this film, like, it is about sexual coercion and sexual assault. And I thought that that was a really thoughtful thing for Metro to do. Um so this is a heavy movie. Yes. And I think particularly because it approaches things in such a incredibly real yeah. way that so many people experience. But it's also a film that was really, really scary to me because it's a party culture film. And you and I talked about this afterwards, but I've just never been. I've always been scared of party culture. Like when I was in high school, my friends would be so mad at me that I didn't want to go to house parties. And I'm just like, I don't, I don't like partying. Partying is, I don't like drunk people. I don't like being drunk. I don't like the feeling of all of these strangers and the pressure of who you're talking to and what you're doing. I don't like it. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think I maybe went to three parties in my life in high school and I didn't enjoy any of them and I was invited to them. I just didn't want to go. Yeah. And I didn't go, I've been clubbing like, twice for friends birthdays and again I didn't want to go but it was a friend's birthday and both times I left before everybody else and was like who can drive me home I'm not enjoying this there's something about it that makes me uncomfortable and that's not to like denigrate people who engage in party culture but it scares me yeah this is where our Venn diagram is just a circle because party culture makes me profoundly uncomfortable as well. I never liked it growing up. 
same as you, whenever I got dragged out or I went to a house party or to a club or anything, I didn't really drink. Like, yeah, I wanted to be in thing. control of the ability to leave. Yeah, me too. Like, I might have a drink, but I didn't get drunk. And like yeah. watching, but and then I watched this movie and I think like, but me abandoning my friends probably wasn't the right thing either. Yeah, no. And like, that was the thing too, is I, I would try to ensure the best that I could that my friends had outs, like that there was alternate ways for them to get where they needed to go. But when I was kind of reflecting on this after this movie and I, I hadn't really thought about it, but you use the word like it, it does, it scares me and it fills me with an anxiety that I feel, I feel, and it lingers just in my chest. Like that's, that's right where I I feel it. And it, yeah, it just makes me so upset. And there's like, there's a very specific kind of quote unquote partying that both you and I like it's, like we're talking about having an anniversary party. That is. The and we've literally said we're not providing liquor. At it. Yeah. And it's like. We just want to dance and have good food. And listen to like our favorite music and just have a silly time. Yeah. And to, to get into the movie proper, I think this film shows really well. And I, I read a review from one of our friends who I think has spent more time in spaces like this. Um, like it shows that you can be someone who enjoys clubbing and enjoys partying in safe ways through this um, one group that Tara spends a brief amount of time with. Yes. It's not like partying is inherently dangerous, inherently wrong, but what this film is looking at, which I then think can be applied to other areas of life, is that when consent culture isn't the forefront and people aren't having those conversations and it's not built into the community, the space, the friend group, that things get slippery and party mm. culture only exacerbates that. Because for me, Tara's friend group already has really bad consent rules or like consent practices and really bad boundaries. We were talking about, I was talking with you about like just the way that everybody like piles into a bed together, whether other people feel okay about that or not, even if it's just sleeping in a bed or the way a friend will like grab a hand and hold it without like, vibing out if that's okay or asking if it's okay which is preferable mm -hmm. and then that how that even bleeds into consent around conversations like when Tara's clearly uncomfortable wearing a particular outfit or um, having a conversation about something really personal like the friends keep pushing and pushing and pushing even M who seems to be pretty thoughtful and so it's that dynamic around that that becomes slippery and then creates a space where more nefarious things happen yeah. But yeah, going back to what you said, like the the content of this, it's scary, it's upsetting, and it's realistic. The discomfort that I was feeling throughout watching the film was exacerbated by the some particular members of our audience. And yeah. The way they were responding to the film. This was a really unfortunate week between her, this, the film we're watching next, and then we also went and saw Twin Peaks Fire Walk with me, which we're gonna be including in probably a month or two on a Twin Peaks rad wrap. Look forward to it. Oh, yeah. Um, where people were laughing at really inappropriate parts that made me feel uncomfortable and, and at sometimes unsafe. Like not genuinely in the moment unsafe, but that this was creating an unsafe space. Mm -hmm. Because there was a lot of people at this movie, How to Have Sex, that were femme presenting and were there by themselves. And 
you know, I'm I am assuming here, but I'm guessing at least one person in that audience knew what this was about, went to see it alone for that reason and had a personal connection to it. And when you have people laughing and clapping and their feet up on the seats and they laughed at the consent educator speaker and as soon as the movie's done, they're laughing and clapping and they're kind of doing that throughout the movie, although not as loud. That's re- that's creating a space that's unsafe for a person who's experienced things like this because it's turning the space into a place where this is a joke. Yeah. When that's not a joke for this person. And it's not a joke for me, even though I haven't really ever been immersed in this party culture. But I know people who have. And I know people that I'm really, really close with that have had these types of experiences. And it was really uncool. And that was happening a little bit in Twin Peaks as well, where this is a really heavy film about sexual assault and people are laughing in moments that are specifically looking at that. Mm-hmm. And that creates an environment that isn't safe for survivors of sexual assault and the people that are close with them. Yeah. It was just, it was, it was, it was difficult. It was already a difficult movie, but an important one, like you said. So when you have some pee pee poo poo, people in the audience that are being disrespectful it it, it makes an, a difficult movie even more difficult yeah i think it's a it's a good point we we really try to do this in every every movie that we go to but it's something i wish could be cultivated more maybe even like specifically talked about like this having an awareness of the type of movie you're seeing and this you know, branching out into anything. Like I think about that as a classroom teacher, if we're covering a particularly heavy text that has some like tough stuff in it, you know, I usually give students a heads up about that. And then I'll say like, if you need to leave at any time, let me know. And then I'll pre like prime my students and say things like, I really expect that we're all respectful in here. And if you're feeling emotional or if you're disagreeing with somebody that we maintain that in a, in an empathetic and respectful way, we could have those conversations before a movie. Right. Like someone from the theater could come out and say, this is a really heavy movie. And so we just really want to encourage people to like keep this space aware of that mm-hmm. um, and and be mindful of how people might be responding to this and, and how it might be impacting them after the movie and giving them that space for that. Like we could have those conversations. That's consent culture to me, too. Yeah. Right. Because we ran into a friend after the movie and that friend said, I'm just I need to process. Right? Yeah. Like I'm trying to process this and those things get in the way of people processing. Like you can chat and laugh and clap, but maybe do it outside of the theater. Maybe take that to the cafe, Mm -hmm. Um, which is something we've talked about before, but it felt particularly upsetting based on the nature of this film. So this is a really important movie. I saw someone on my letterbox who lives in the UK, saw this movie and it was a Q and a with um, Mia McKenna Bruce and the director Molly Manning Walker, who said that this is starting to be shown in schools. Oh. And then they have conversations about consent afterwards. Great. Like this is a tricky film, but like this is happening to p- people in high school. Like they deserve to see these kinds of things depicted and then have conversations about them. This is like the anti-euphoria to me. Mm. Um, this is real, but in a way like it's, it's upsetting and it's uncomfortable and it's high schoolers drinking and having sex and doing drugs. And well, they're not really doing drugs, but drinking and having sex and, partying and and then in that some like really upsetting things happening but in a in a way that's true to life well and i think that showing something like this 
speaks so much truer than you think about those like really cheesy like 80s videos or 90s videos of these really bad actors acting out a scenario and then somebody being like what was wrong with this that happened i think that facilitating a conversation after showing this to a group of young people is super in my mind would be super effective so yeah an important movie a heavy movie a movie to like be aware of what you're about to watch before you watch it Mm -hmm. and to be respectful of the people you're watching it with because as this movie shows this has likely happened to more people that you know than you realize and they might never have shared that with anyone so be mindful that that might be the case even if that person hasn't told you and you feel like they would have 100 percent. how did it make you feel It made me feel grateful for this important exploration of the need for consent culture to be the norm, despite the heaviness of the film. Mm -hmm. How did it make you feel? It made me feel heavy, but like you, heavy but grateful this important film exists. Okay. We, like with her, revisited a film in the White Boy TM pantheon. This one perhaps more so. A Mac Daddy of (laughs) White Boy TM, if you will. We saw the 25th anniversary screening of the 1990 drama film. 1999. 1999 drama film Fight Club. I didn't realize it was this 25th anniversary. Jesus. Well, just 2024 and it came out in 1999. It was directed by David Fincher, written by Jim Oles, and it's based on the novel by Jack Palahniuk. It stars Brad Pitt as Tyler Durden, Edward Norton as the narrator, Helena Bonham Carter as Marla Singer, and Meatloaf as Robert Paulson. There's a lot of additional supporting cast, but I'm going to stick with that. Synopsis, an insomniac office worker and a devil-may-care soap maker from an underground fight club that evolves into much more. What did you think of Fight Club? I'm going to start with my history with Fight Club. So I truly loved this movie as a teen. I watched it obsessively. Uh, I almost think exclusively with friends and I was always, this was one that was always on the docket for showing people that hadn't seen it before. My junior high girlfriend, uh, shut it off halfway through and said it was stupid. And I mean, I don't disagree, but she also didn't get to the end, which explores, answers a lot of questions about what happens before. I was so mad at her for it. I don't blame her now. If it wasn't her jam, it's not her jam, which is totally cool. But I feel like this is one of the films that started my movie watching journey proper and where I really wanted to start watching more and more movies and getting into movies. I feel like you had a similar sort of relationship with this movie. Yeah. I mean, I we're going to be releasing a deep dive on one of my like true or like cinematic origin movies. <laughs> but this actually was a movie that I was watching before that because... In my grade seven language arts class, we had to do a like final end of year memoir project. And the cover of my memoir, which I still have, is pretty much entirely posters from movies. Mm-hmm. So I have truly always loved movies. Um, and Fight Club features prominently on that. I had a Fight Club poster on my wall. It was also a film that I showed so many people. And then I have a section in that memoir on like favorite movies. And I think Fight Club is like the first one. <laughs> I was 12 years old. What the fuck? (laughs) That is too young to be obsessed with Fight Club. Oh, yeah. Um, And I do think like it definitely informed my movie watching. But like her, this is a film that I've changed my thoughts on a lot. And as I should, I was 12 when I was first watching it. And I kind of watched it obsessively probably between the ages of 12 and 16. And I think it started to kind of fall away 
end of high school and into my 20s. It wasn't one that I was consistently watching. But I mean, I hope I'm different than I was when I was 12 and 16 (laughs) and 21. Like, I hope so. I'm 33. I hope I'm different. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that it really made me realize watching this is that I used to think cynicism was so cool. Mm. I used to think like, fuck the world was so cool. And I don't think that anymore. And I'm really grateful that I don't think that anymore. And I don't think this film necessarily thinks that, but I think too much of the film is spent on that in a way that does seem cool Yes, for the ending to undo all of that. Like I liked this movie when I was 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, because I thought the movie was cool. Yes. And just like the attitudes that are adopted by our main characters is the quote unquote right attitude to have. You kind of, you, you made a great, a great equation uh, for it in that it kind of suffers the Joker problem uh, where its intentions were not received necessarily by its audience. To a degree. I read a couple yes. quotes from David Fincher where he, I can't read the whole quote without wrecking the movie and I don't want to wreck the movie. If there's some people listening who genuinely haven't seen it, I do think it's worth seeing if you've never had it spoiled for you. But in one of those quotes, the quote starts with, I want people to love Tyler. Yeah. And it doesn't end with, and by the end, I want them to hate him. It doesn't end with that. Yeah. So I do think that the film is more critical than perhaps many of us, myself included, recognized and reckoned with at the time. Yeah. But I don't think the film has really ever been taken up in that way because there are parts of the film that are meant to seem cool. And David Fincher's talked about how like, in like really to me gross ways, men are supposed to be hunters. There's a quote from him where he's like, men are supposed to be hunters and we live in an age of social emasculation. So he does or he, did believe some in. of these things that are in the movie, although perhaps he doesn't think the answer is what Tyler is doing. But there's enough genuine feeling about a lot of that in the movie that it doesn't fully critique it, which is a Joker problem too, because mm-hmm. I don't really think Todd Phillips is trying to critique what's going on. Yeah. Although I don't think he's entirely endorsing it either. And I think that's kind of where this film is at. I refer to it in my Letterboxd review as the movie that launched a thousand incels in yeah. the early aughts. You know, and it's, I was reading on the Wikipedia page and I don't want to, like, I, I do believe that there's people who are going to engage in things, whether it's this movie that makes them feel that way or another thing. And we can't entirely blame the art. But there were a lot of really awful things that happened with bombs and guns and non-consensual fight clubs and stuff following this movie that the movie makes so much of this look cool. Mm-hmm. Right. And then, you know, just to, to add to the white guy TM, it's, I've got receipts on that. This was named in 2003 by Men's Journal as one of the 50 best guy movies of all time. That's gross. Yeah. Like the masculinity in in on display in this is, even though Tyler Durden would disagree, it's really gross. Mm-hmm. And I mean, Edward Norton's ain't any better. Yeah, like the because he worships. There's a scene between Marla and the narrator where he's being really rude to Marla and saying like, when a like when somebody lesser sucks onto somebody like greater, and she says, "Well, what about you?" And it's like, yeah, he kind of he has this idolization of Tyler and just following along with him that then manifests his worship and then jealousy and then anger and all of these things that are just now to me not 
cool. And one of the things that really showed me how much I've changed since I was 12 is we saw this in an almost sold out theater in 2024 and it came out in 1999. And there's a lot of people laughing at things that I don't think are funny. Like howling. Yes. Yeah. Mean spirited laughter at things that I just don't think are funny. And I don't, some of them I think Fincher was trying to make us laugh at. And so how much can I blame people? But I don't think the character of Bob is funny in any way. Mm -hmm. And I think if you are somebody who supports trans folks and non-binary folks and uh, fat liberation and and respecting people's bodies, Mm -hmm. (laughs) then laughing at him is really disgusting. And it's like right off the tip that it's really hateful. It's played for a joke immediately. Especially because I think Bob is one of the few characters that any, any pathos is created for. Yeah. So, yeah. There is a scene for me that I feel like was the, was the, the, the absolute turning point in my feelings about this movie, watching it this time. And it's just this moment when Edward Norton and Brad Pitt walk onto a bus and the narrator is, or Edward Norton is talking about, how they would go into places and size size up everything in the room and everybody in a, in a space. And just looking at the looks of disgust on both both of their faces while they look at the people on the bus and it's like these aren't the these aren't the 1%. These aren't the the rich people or like and Yeah, where is your hatred aimed at? And that's where it's just like oh, they think that they're better than everybody. Yeah. They think that they deserve that everybody else deserves to burn, fuck the world, and and everybody else in it. Well, that's it's so I, hateful. I was and saying nasty. that to you after. I'm sure I thought this stuff was funny and he 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 when I was younger, but I'm like, there's for the slightest of spoilers, like among many other more heinous things that Tyler Durden does, he pees in soup. Mm-hmm. That's not funny. Mm-hmm. That's not funny. And if that made some people start peeing in soup when they work in places and we're, you know, we're meant to see here that like, Oh, it's, it's at a really rich place, but I'm sure people started doing that at places that weren't rich. And it's still, it's not okay to pee in the super rich people either. Like it's, it's not funny. And people were like howling at it. And I think I didn't hate this movie. I didn't come away being like half star. Yeah. 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 Um, I just don't uncritically, revere it the way I did when I was younger. And I think that's a good thing. Uh, I 100% agree with you. And I think that if I want to scratch the itch that Fight Club once gave me, I am more interested in revisiting Mr. Robot. Or Bottoms. <laughs> yes. 100%. <laughs> um, I mean, to to shed light on this movie, I think that it is snappy. It's stylishly shot. There is it. There is an inherent coolness to it because it is it's it's punk, bibe, and it's well acted. It's well written, like you said. Like they pull a lot of lines like directly from the source material. It does have a great twist. I still think in all of cinema. I think that which comes from the source material. I think the ending shot rocks, and it introduced a generation to the Pixies. Where's my mind? And that is one of the greatest songs ever. Yeah, there's still a lot of this that does work for me on like a cinematic level and on like a nostalgia level. I'm much more critical now of a character like Marla. Like she's just a manic pixie dream girl in a different way. 
dark manic pixie dream girl like really she's she's not used well she's treated horribly throughout the film we shouldn't feel good about where she is at by the end of the film and what they're trying to pull there i think is nefarious at best and dangerous at worst yes um and it's a shame because i actually think that character is interesting um and what this this movie ends very differently than the book ends and i think how it ends creates too much ambiguity ambiguity for me around the critiques that are sometimes in the film about what's going on and i think it ends in a way that is too uncritical mm-hmm. and is too schmaltzy honestly even though it seems really cool so you might forgive the schmaltz it's it's yeah. pretty pretty akin to some of the worst romance movies <laughs> yeah uh, and and I liked that when I was 12 and I was reading online that this film, both when it came out in 1999 into now, has been, quote, largely popular with teenagers. And I think that says what it says. I think when we're teenagers, we're cynical, many of us, mm-hmm. and that space to think about it is worthwhile. But the fact that this, you know, I thought I was a real, like, not like other girls for loving this movie makes me feel gross now. <laughs> Um, and, and I, 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 I don't know why I feel really complicated about this movie. Yep. <laughs> Same. So I was excited to revisit it. It was sick that there was an almost sold out theater that was like really dialed in or at least from where we were sitting in the second row. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't hate it, but I'm critical of it and reflective of how I used to feel about it and how I feel about it now and thankful that I'm not a cynic. I do think this world is shit so often like we're watching genocide play out on our phones mm-hmm. where we live in a province where a city just banned pride flags like it's a scary world it's a capitalistic greedy world but project mayhem is not the answer to me mm-hmm. the answer is like working together and activism and hope and community and connection it's not disdain and superiority and violence and chaos and yeah. I thought that was sick as hell when I was 12. And now I feel sick about it. Yeah. I lean more Waymond Wong than I do. Tyler. Durden. Tyler Durden. Totally. Um, how did Fight Club make you feel? Complicated and gross. <laughs> <laughs> how did it make you feel? A nostalgia that reveals how much I've changed since this was once a favorite movie. Okay. Should we talk about dads? We should. Bad dad, not many. I went for Tyler Durden. Oh, interesting. (laughs) I mean, toxic masculinity personified. I really, like I mentioned, I really have disdain for how he sizes himself up against everybody else and thinks lower of the human race and people. I kind of think of it as almost like a God complex, though he wouldn't see it that way. And he's a dangerous person. No, thank you. Who's yours? I picked the narrator. Interesting. I personally find him more scary and dangerous than Tyler Durden because he worships Tyler Durden and brings more people to Tyler Durden. If we have Tyler Durdens around the world and other people say this isn't cool, then they don't flourish. But when we have Edward Nortons or narrators who latch onto them Mm -hmm. and become like them and bring other people into it. 
that is scary. And the narrator fundamentally, like we're supposed to connect with him and relate to him. And that's scarier to me because his inability to reckon with the part he plays in the world, this world that he hates so much he's doing. I mean, I think back to our John Waters episode when John Waters said to the person who was like, thanks for coming to your, this toilet boil bowl of the city. And he was like, why do you say that? Make it better. If you hate the world so much, then make it better. Don't make it worse. Yeah. And he cannot see that. And that leads him down the path of worshiping someone like Tyler, becoming someone like Ty- Tyler, which just leads to more harm, more danger and a worse world. That's real. That's real smart. Tyler Durden is the Barney Stinson to the narrators. Ted Mosby. Ted Mosby. Yeah. The narrators, Jim Halpert. Yeah. Like the, yes. we see him as not as bad and therefore the insidiousness of who he is proliferates because we feel bad for him and we think he's a nice guy that's just, you know, got some problems or is is, is a little astray. And I actually think he's more dangerous. Holy shit. You're so right. Like Jim Halpert is right on the money. Yeah. Oh yeah. Like it's somebody who is, I can't, I we've tried to rewatch the office and I'm like, this is such a hateful show. I can't do it. He so hates his job and where he is. And and he thinks he, he deserves thinks he's better him. than everybody else around him, but he's such an that's such an asshole view of things. Yeah, oh, he sucks. I can't watch The Office. No. I feel like I feel about Fight Club. It's too cynical. Yeah. I want a nice show. I want a happy show. That's that's such a good comparison. Yeah, I'm with you, hundred percent. Okay, narrator. Don't be our Don't dad. Don't be our dad. Red Death. I picked Eugenie. Me too. My, I don't know if I'm saying her name. I was right, between I was between Eugenie and Amy from her. I me too. I also I want to say I shortlisted Sky from How to Have Sex for Bad Dad. Mm. If you've seen the movie, you know what I'm talking about. Yeah. Oh, why Eugenie? She's so confident in who she is, and she is caring and empathetic to everyone around her without putting her own self to the side, except in one regard, mm-hmm. which don't work yourself to burn out, take care of your body. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, I just find like, I just find her such an admirable person. And, and the way she is with Pauline when she like very early in the film is like, that girl has something. Mm-hmm. And you can tell that she wants to train her in a way that's not going to be like Gordon Ramsay. This is shit. You know, like it's <laughs> going to be caring and loving and, you know, she's, there's even there's a scene where this group of men is like, you should come eat dinner with us. And she's like, well, I like being I like being where I am. Mm-hmm. And she just speaks with such confidence and. Connects with people over that. And I just think she's awesome. Yeah, I echo everything that you said. I love that she's just purely and uncompromisingly herself. She and she loves what she loves. She speaks up for herself. She's caring. She's attentive. And like you're saying with Pauline, like. Eugenie is talented and recognizes talent and wants to nurture talents and other people and isn't just hoarding it all for herself and selfishly keeping secrets or keeping that talented just for herself. She wants to, uh, she wants it to flourish in others as well. And that's, that's such a great person to look to as like a mentor or a quote unquote father figure. (laughs) (laughs) Our show's weird. <laughs> Truly. But I, I'm ag- I agree with you. So Eugenie, be, be your dad. dad. I also want to resurrect something we only done one other time and name a sad dad of the week. Okay. Who is it? 
Theodore Twombly. Oh, he is a sad dad. <laughs> I think that he does have happy moments and he has moments of joy, which are so beautiful. But I think the umbrella over Theodore is that of a sad dad. Yeah. So he joins the ranks of Kristen Dunst in the power. I don't of the even dog. remember what we said for that. Oh, woo, woo, woo. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds right. So Theodore Twombly. Oh, oh, woo, woo, woo. Red wreck. So contrary to a conversation I had with a student this week, I think it's cool to make accessible things and not be elitist. <laughs> um, there are, we don't live in New York. We don't live in London. We don't live in places where we get to see like the happening live theater of the day. Although we have been going to some stuff at the Citadel in Edmonton here and that's pretty cool. But there are so many amazing plays, both musical and not, happening in places, especially like New York and London, that we'll just never have the chance to see because we can't afford to go to New York and London every time something cool is playing. And also those tickets themselves are expensive, even for people that live in these cities. So there's a, I think it's a theater only, like they don't usually release these digitally or um, on a physical copy, but called National Theater Live. Um, And it's like a British production, I believe, um, that will tape kind of their most innovative, I guess, or the like what they feel is currently most popular select certain shows in that are playing in the UK to do live um, recordings of, and then they edit that into a cinematic experience. Think Hamilton, what they did with Hamilton. What they did with Hamilton, exactly. So it's called National Theatre Live, and we went to our first one this week, and I'm like, why have we not been going to more of these? Mm. Because this is a chance to see things that we otherwise wouldn't have the chance to see. So I alluded to, I was telling a student who's who's one of our like big theater students at my school, like, you should go see this. It's really cool. And they were like, that's like live theater should never be seen, not live. And I was like, well, there's no other way to see this, though. Mm-hmm. And it's so phenomenal. Like, I agree with you. I would love to have seen this live, but I can't. Mm-hmm. And so I actually think preserving that, I wish they'd done it with more things. Like, I wish we had hamilton-like versions of wicked with indina menzel or like the original sweeney todd you know like i want to see those i think that preserving those culturally is important even if we recognize that this now has become a different medium than seeing it live so anyway we saw vanya Mm -hmm. which is a modern uh, interpretation of or modern adaptation of anton chekhov's uncle vanya and Andrew Scott was a co-creator and he plays all of the characters. <laughs> yeah, it's a one-man show. It's a one-man show. It's a two-hour show. It's a, it's a one beautiful man show. Indeed. And, you know, it took me a while to get into it, but I I loved it. The audience was so locked in and it was a pretty much sold-out show at Cineplex. Um, it only played two different days, um, a number of showings on both th- days, so it's not... It is accessible, but not as accessible as we might like. Mm-hmm. But if you have a chance to see theater, live theater in the movie theater, I think that's pretty cool. I agree. So Rad Rack National Theater Live or other ways of like watching live shows in a more accessible way. Get into it.
Thank you so much for listening. We drop a new episode every Thursday. Until then, you can follow us and slide into our DMs on Instagram at baddad.raddad. Get a sneak peek of what we've been watching on our individual Letterboxd accounts. Our usernames are in the show notes, and we would absolutely love you forever if you could share us with the rad people in your life and drop us a rating, review, or follow on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening from. That's going to do it for these stinkies this week, so until next time. I'm Kylie, and my dad's dead. I'm Elliot. My dad's a deadbeat. But remember, not all dads have to be bad. to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the acclaimed movie, All of Us Strangers, starring Paul Mescal and Andrew Scott. Stream the new Hulu original limited series, We Were the Lucky Ones, with Joey King and Logan Lerman. And don't forget about Grey's Anatomy. Every Grey's episode ever is now streaming on Hulu. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu.